it turns out that making a slightly worse decision today, most of the time, is better than making a slightly better decision in a week. Because for startups, speed is everything. It's true. Um, agility is everything. Now, one, you have to have the confidence to make those decisions day in, day out. But two, that becomes so much easier when you have the support and trust of your co-founders because they'll back you. and welcome back to People Building Businesses. Here at the podcast, we talk to interesting entrepreneurs and business leaders about the steps they've taken to build their businesses. My name is Jason Lim. I'm your host and the chief of staff at YBF Ventures. YBF is a tech innovation hub with spaces in Melbourne and Sydney. We help startups to scale, scale-ups to succeed, and corporates to innovate. You can find out more at ybfventures.com. Our guest today is a member of at YBF Melbourne and a recent alumnus of the Lander and Rogers Law Tech Hub with YBF, the co-founder and CEO of Joseph, Tom Dreyfus. Joseph is a software as a service legal tech solution, allowing lawyers to build bots for solving legal problems. It's been making waves in the legal technology industry since it was founded in 2017. The company has seen really impressive revenue growth of 20% to 25% month on month since launch and they've also raised $1 million in seed funding. They've achieved quite a lot in the past two years, and I'm keen to find out how they've done it. Tom, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Jason. It's, uh, it's great to be here. We're both having a, a bit of crazy days, so I appreciate you being here. We are. <laughs> so to start things off, I know a lot about Joseph, but I don't know much about Tom Dreyfus, the person and you seem to be quite an elusive figure as you work late nights at OIBF and okay. you're always interesting observation for the people listening to this podcast. Tom is always the last one working here at YBF. That is definitely not something that we should be sharing with listeners. I am <laughs> I have an excellent work life balance. Joseph has a truly relaxed culture. Yep. If you want to find out more and come work with me, get in touch. Yep. Joseph.com. Joseph.legal. Joseph.legal.com. Easy. Close. <laughs> So Tom, tell us a bit more about yourself and maybe let's let's wind back the clock. Where'd you grow up? What was your childhood like? We're going back that far. Wow. Okay. I definitely wasn't prepared for this. Um, I am Melbourne born and raised. Um, I went to school here. Um, I went from school to Melbourne University. Um, I did a, a double degree there in arts and law. Mm. Um, absolutely no tech background whatsoever. Um, I think that when I was as early as high school, um, I kind of knew I wanted to be a lawyer. Um, it was something that appealed to me because I had this love of, of both languages and also reading, writing, um, and, and text analysis. I know that that sounds highly specific, super nerdy, but it <laughs> relates to something that I then did later when I found myself kind of wandering into the data analytics space where text analytics was the thing that kind of got me there. Hmm. Um, we, we can get there later. Um, from law school, I, I went to um, work as a solicitor at a top-tier commercial firm here in Melbourne, um, and I lasted for two and a half years. Um, I thought that was a pretty good effort. 
uh, commercial law firms are, they're a hard place to work. Um, they're amazing places to learn the trade. Um, some of the people I worked with were just truly spectacular minds mm. um, and sponging up the information and, and the knowledge that they had was, was a really great opportunity. Um, but I think value-wise, it probably just wasn't the best fit for me. What in terms of the value wasn't a fit for you? So one way of, of describing the, the work that I did, I was a litigator, um, is working for companies and people with lots of money, fighting other companies and people with lots of money over lots of money. Um, and it turned out that the impact that I wanted to have on the world was, was a little different. So, so it wasn't that, I mean, culturally, I think that law firms, some law firms are really amazing places to work. And I also think that the work that lawyers do is really fundamentally important. Um, and I love working in legal tech because a big part of what I do is help them work better. Um, but for me personally, I, I saw an opportunity to have an impact in a bit of a different way. Awesome. So before we jump into the steps that you took to create Joseph and come up with the idea of Joseph, I want to understand where that entrepreneurial spirit really comes from because it, for, for different people, it stems from different areas in their life, whether it's something they've experienced in their careers or even tracing back to you know things that they've seen growing up as well. So when you were growing up, did you ever imagine yourself being an entrepreneur? And looking back, do you think that there were early signs that you would be a risk taker um, and an entrepreneur? That is a super hard and great question. I think that I always had confidence in my own abilities, which is a big part of being an entrepreneur. From pretty early on, I was willing to put myself out there, um, whether that was trying something new or, you know, specific examples when I was 15, you know, going off to France by myself for a year um, oh. to go to school, uh, speaking no French when I got there. Um, it was a very quiet first few months for me as I spoke to no one and just tried to, to understand what people were saying to me. And then like the three month market clicked and that was cool. I think that is a big part of, of the resilience required to start a business, run a business, um, fail along the way, uh, get back up um, when you do get knocked down and you will get knocked down. But I don't think I knew that I was gonna start a startup, um, especially not in tech. I mean, when I said I knew I wanted to be a lawyer, it was a particular type of lawyer. It was a black letter lawyer, mm. um, someone who practiced law. I mean, from that law firm experience, I went to the, the High Court of Australia as an associate. I mean, that, that role is like pure law. Like you just, you hang out with the Australian constitution all day, every day. Sounds like fun. Um, I loved it. <laughs> um, and then I went back to, to law school to teach for a bit. I mean, I was, I was on a particular track. Um, the thing that took me off that track, I mean, I drew a great deal of inspiration for starting Joseph from my co-founder, Sam, um, who should probably be sitting here telling his own story, but he's not. So I'm going to tell it for him. Sam and I went to law school together, went to the same law firm together, um, both went and worked for judges at the same time, um, have been really good friends for a really long time. Um, and in 2016, a year before we started Joseph, 
Sam was working with a civil liberties organisation that tasked him and, and, and a team of law students to come up with an idea for how they wanted to change the law. And I know that's super broad, but they wanted to choose a really achievable, focused issue and change the law. Wow. And the issue that they chose was public transport infringements, which at the time, because Mikey had just been rolled out, were really fraught. People were getting hit with these things called on-the-spot fines where I'm not going to go into the detail. Anyway, they, um, they built an app and the app was designed to help people understand their rights when given an on-the-spot fine by um, a public transport officer. And all it was designed to do, super simple, was help people to decide whether to accept the fine or contest it. Um, they had a marketing budget of zero dollars and they launched the product, had 60,000 users in the first month. Wow. Three months later, the government scrapped on-the-spot fines because it was, it was a strategic advocacy tool. How do we change this unfair That's incredible. law? It was amazing. And I watched Sam go through that process and thought, whoa, like this is how to have an impact. So that was sort of like Joseph version 0.5 or mm -hmm. 0.1 in it, a sense. It, it was because what happened next was I was brought into this working group of community legal centers. So the organizations that provide legal assistance to people who can't afford to pay for it. And I brought Sam along with me because he'd had that amazing experience with Mikey Fines, which was what his app was called. Um, because the working group was set up to look at emerging legal technologies that would allow them to scale their services to people who couldn't afford them. Um, how do we make legal services accessible to people who don't have the money to pay for them in circumstances where the organizations providing those services are resource capacity and money constrained. They'll never be able to meet demand. So how do we at least help them get closer to that? That was actually the origin, the origins of Joseph, wow. that working group. And what was the light bulb where you kind of went, okay, you know, you've had this great career in law and to some extent in academia as well, mm. being a lecturer there. What was the light bulb moment where you kind of went, okay, you know, this, there's something in here. Let's, let's start a company. I think it really was meeting a need. So I don't think we, we thought we were starting a company. Okay. Sam and I were in this working group and we realized that these community legal centers could articulate really clearly their needs as an organization to scale their services. They could articulate really clearly the needs of clients and prospective clients to access these services whenever and wherever they needed them. Um, but they didn't have the capacity, the will, the expertise to build the products that they could sort of articulate a vision for. And so Sam and I, it, it was the right time for us. I was, I had a bit of time on my hands because I was, I was teaching at university, but that was, that was all. I mean, I know that sounds, I had a job at when, I, when I started Joseph. Um, but I think for me doing kind of one thing at any one time is never quite enough. Mm. Um, Sam, Sam's kind of the same. And so we put our heads together and said, okay, so there's this articulated need on the, the organizational side, articulated need on the client side, the clients of these, of these organizations. How do we help them to build a product that's going to meet both sides of that need? Um, and so we went away and we found our technical co-founder, Kirill, 
Um, And the three of us still definitely hadn't started a company. Um, We had a couple of CLCs, community legal centers, that we were working with. Um, And we, we partnered up with them to basically just explore those needs and see if we could build something that solved them. Um, and it all went from there. I mean, it was, it was a long and hard process, um, but we didn't form the company until 12 months after that working group had kind of done its thing. And the working group was in 2017. Is that right? It was at the end of 2016. 2016. Got it. Just yeah. getting my, uh, my no, that's right. fine. Awesome. So you, you were working still at that point in time. So this was a, you know, you were working on two things at once. You were being a lecturer, um, and you were also working on this Joseph thing. On the super side, side project. Super side project. Um, when did it become a full-time thing for you? When did that flip switch? Yeah. Um, switch flip, sorry. In the middle of 2017, mm. um, I went over to New York to Columbia Law School um, to do my master's in law. Um, so we'd actually just formed Joseph. Um, we had these partners. We were exploring need, but I had a long-standing plan to do more study because uh, I'm a big nerd. Um, and, and I wanted to get my master's in law so that I could hang out with the American constitution for a year. Um, <laughs> you I love constitution. I, I, I did that successfully. Um, but, but Joseph had started by this point, And so I was studying full time over there and finding, you know, 20, 25 hours a week to keep pushing Joseph along. Sam was working as a lawyer in Melbourne doing a similar thing. Kirill was working as a freelance developer and also finding time for Joseph on the side. Um, It didn't become a real thing until our first paying customer signed their contract. Uh, That happened in, and we actually say that this is our launch date. Right. um, Because we didn't have a product in the market until this point in time, which was May, 2018. So May 2018 is like a is a big month for us because the first dollar landed in in Joseph's bank account. Um, wow. We released the product to the market more broadly. We actually went public with it and said, "Hey, we've built this platform. You can use it." Um, and we also got into Startmate. Right. So Startmate very is very well known accelerator here right. in Australia. If, if, if people know about Startmate, it's a uh, probably Australia's number one tech accelerator. Mm. Um, and we were lucky enough to, to get accepted into the Melbourne cohort in 2018, which ran from July through October. And to be part of Startmate, all three of us stopped everything else that we were doing. We, we just dropped everything and devoted ourselves to Joseph Um really to make a go of it. I mean, we thought, okay, we've got these three months with some of the best operators and advisors and mentors in Australia at our disposal. Let's see how far we can get. That's um, great. And yeah. it turned out that we could get pretty far. That's amazing. I have so many follow-on questions in, in that story alone because I think that that story really epitomizes the entrepreneur's journey. I guess I'll start with, you know, how did you find a technical co-founder? Because a lot of people out there uh, who are thinking of starting companies aren't technical at all. They might have domain expertise, but they have no clue where to start when it comes to tech. Mm. How did you find such a great co-founder to be part of the journey? Friend of a friend. Right. Um, So Sam actually on the Mikey Finds project had worked with a really talented developer. And so we went back to him and said, hey, I think that there's, there's something more here. 
um, and we want to start this project. And he said, cool, let me introduce you to my friend Kirill. Um, I think he might be a good fit. We hung out with Kirill a bunch before we started working together. Um, we had coffee a few times. We went for a drink. We had, you know, a good chat about the problem we were solving, which, by the way, boils down to making legal services more accessible for everyone and using technology to do that. Mm. Um, and it turned out that that was something that Kirill cared about really deeply. I mean, he'd never been a lawyer. He'd never worked in the legal industry, but he'd had some negative experiences with getting help from lawyers. Sure. With dealing with legal bureaucracy, administrative, you know, quasi-legal processes. And so would, all, so would all of his friends. And so he came to the conversation and said, yeah, this is something that's, that's super important. Um, I don't know exactly how I can help, but I'd like to try. Um, it was a pretty low risk way to start our working relationship. I think we were all testing the waters for the first six months or so. Um, no one had to quit anything that they were doing. Um, no one had to take themselves off a path that they were on to get onto Joseph's path at that point in time. Mm. It was really only sort of 12 months later when we got the news that we were in Startmate that the rubber hit the road. Um, and that's actually a great segue to my next question. 12 months is a lot of time. For a lot of people building businesses on the side, you can often really easily lose focus on what's important and you can often become disillusioned with the lack of progress or traction. What kept the three of you on the path towards continuing to build Joseph despite that long time? It sounds, I mean, it sounds like I'm reading out of a like startup playbook, but the honest answer is caring deeply about the problem we were solving. Um, and I mean that, like yeah. we spent a lot of time talking and arguing about what the most important problem of the many, many problems that we were trying to solve actually was, and then making that our mission. Um, that more than anything, I mean, at the time that actually felt really hard spending heaps of time together, not just working on the product, but talking about what it was that we were trying to do together. But the time we spent talking about what we were trying to do together, getting on the same page, making sure we cared about the same thing, I think is what has made the, the enterprise sustainable. Knowing that we all cared so deeply from the start kept us going even when it did feel slow. Did that alignment with your co-founders come naturally or was it something that the three of you had to work on as you continued to, to work towards building Joseph? We worked on it. We worked on it really hard and we still work on it all the time. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that it came naturally. I mean, we all, we all brought different experiences. We've all, we've all come from, from different backgrounds. Um, we all care about different things. I think we had to be willing to give each other pretty kind of robust feedback at every step to work out, to make sure that we were on the same page. Um, we, we all spent time trying to articulate our vision for what we thought Joseph could become um, to articulate the problems that we thought we were solving. And then we'd critique, we'd critique each other. Um, and how do you three manage that critique? Because some people can't take it. Some founders, you know, they, they, they get against each other and they don't work through the problems. But how do you do that? 
we are really good at not letting things bubble away in the background. Right. So being um, forward with the issues. Tackle them early and openly and honestly um, is the, the best advice that I could give. It's something that we try to practice. One of the, one of the people who works at Joseph described our approach as radical candor. Um, that's a great way to put it. Which, which I really like. I mean, if that's, if that's a culture that we can embed in the organization, um, I think ultimately it, it's the best thing for everyone. I mean, it does mean hard conversations. It means you do have to be a bit robust. But so long as the person who's giving you their feedback is as open to receiving it as they are to giving it, then it works. That's the hard part, right? Like it's really easy to give feedback. It's really hard to take it. And so I think that if you're going to be a person who gives feedback, you have to not only be willing to receive it, but actively ask for it. I think it's something that we try to do. And it's so aligned to your mission as well, that radical candor, that radical transparency. In some ways, that's exactly your philosophy, uh, the philosophy of Joseph itself, trying to bring transparency and I guess candor to, to, to an industry that historically has been not very transparent, not very accessible. So that's a great alignment of the way that you run your company and the mission that your company is on as well. I hadn't thought about it that way, but I'll take it. <laughs> so 2018, Startmate, people listening to this podcast are probably familiar with Startmate. You know, what was the experience like applying for Startmate and then going through that process? Because it sounds like for the three of you, it was the first time that you'd ever built a startup and Startmate sounds like a very, I wouldn't say intimidating, but certainly intense process, intense few weeks. What was that experience like for you? It is intense. Um, the application process itself was both kind of enlightening and intense. There were a bunch of steps along the way. We met and talked to a lot of people who asked us a lot of questions that we did not have answers to. Um, things we just hadn't turned our mind to. But to be honest, being asked those questions about the future of our business, where we saw it going, what we wanted to achieve, both in the short, medium and long term, and not being able to answer them was one of the real reasons that we wanted to get into Startmate. You know, if, if along the way people are asking you challenging but the right questions, it just makes you want to spend more time with them. You want them to ask you those questions mm. more and more so that you can come up with the answers and then hopefully they're still around to workshop those answers with you. Um, Startmate itself is, I mean, we wouldn't, we, we just wouldn't be where we are today if we hadn't gone through Startmate. It's a, it's a 12-week program, but it was pretty transformational for us. This is going to sound like I'm plugging Startmate. In fact, no, I am plugging Startmate, <laughs> so that's fine. They, they recently actually, I was, I was talking to the head of operations at, at Startmate recently about what it is that kind of, that made Startmate special or important for us. And, and my answer to that was that being in an accelerator program for us meant being able to ask questions about anything that came up on a day-to-day -day basis and get an answer from a group of people really, really quickly, a group of people who probably had good answers, and then test those answers with either another group of people or a limited group of people really, really quickly. And so a process of getting feedback on decisions that you wanted to make. 
from advisors, from mentors that would sometimes take a week or two weeks or a month, you could do in half an hour. Wow. And when you're making those hard decisions really, really quickly, you naturally accelerate. It increases the velocity of the whole business because there are no decision blockers. I think for us, that's what being in an accelerator felt like. It also means you don't have time to catch your breath because you can always make the next decision and do the next thing and try the next thing and learn the next thing. Um, It means that at the end of the 12 weeks, you are exhausted, but you're also in a completely different place. I mean, we went into Startmate having literally like six weeks earlier made our first ever dollar. We'd made a few more dollars by the time we started Startmate, but not many more. And we forexed our revenue over the 12 weeks. Wow. Which put us in a position to raise, by the way. Like, just, I think that it is fair to say that, that we wouldn't have done most of the things that we have done since Startmate without Startmate. What were some of the changes that you saw the company go through pre-Startmate and then post-Startmate? And maybe some of the things that we can, we can touch on are things like, you know, uh, the direction of your product, um, number one, and maybe number two, um, the direction of your team. The biggest change, I think, the biggest change in, in, in the way we ran the business during Startmate came from a few people telling us to be in constant conversation with our market and our customers. So I think that we had kind of isolated ourselves from the market that we were ultimately trying to sell to because we were so focused on our product, because that development phase had been really hard and sometimes it felt a bit slow. We hadn't spent enough time talking to the people who we actually wanted to work with. And so the advice that we got really early on in Startmate was have those conversations. Make sure you are having like a a minimum number of customer conversations every single week. Um, We set ourselves a kind of an internal KPI of having 10 of those conversations every week for the 12 weeks of Startmate, um, which we ended up meeting. Wow. Now, that was 120 conversations with potential customers in our market and a data set that allowed us to kind of define our product roadmap, our sales strategy, our customer success strategy, pretty much everything we did from there was based on the data that we'd gathered from those conversations. That was a big change and something that we haven't stopped doing. We do it a little differently now because we have a customer base. Um, We're not just trying to understand what their needs might be. Um, We can actually understand what they do with our product, what problems they are actually solving, what value they are creating. But instilling in us the importance of actually speaking to your market, to your customers all the time is something that that has changed the company. That's incredible. And it sounds like you've got some really, really great advice through the Start Meet program. For anyone going through an accelerator, what's your advice on choosing the right advice to listen to? Because I'm sure that you know, you, you have hundreds of mentors all telling you different things. How do you filter that into what's important for your company? At Startmate, they call that mentor whiplash. Right. <laughs> um, because that's what it feels like. You will have a question and you will get directly conflicting advice from two people whose opinions you deeply respect within a few minutes of each other. 
that is the best opportunity. I mean, no mentor or advisor, no good mentor or advisor is giving you advice that they expect you to just swallow and do. They're not giving you instructions, right? They're giving you advice. And so the extent to which you can distill conflicting advice into an action plan that works best for you and your company, because no one else knows you and your company better than you, the better that plan is going to end up being. I mean, I think that it is a constant challenge to get good inputs into your decision-making, especially when you're a really early-stage company. Ultimately, you want data, Mm. right? You want data from your customers. um, You want data from your competitors, from your market, all of these inputs that should go into your decision-making. But before you're at that point, and most companies in an accelerator are before that point, you have people who've done it before. They're going to give you the best inputs. They're all data points. And the more data points you have, chances are the better decision you're going to make, even if you don't treat any one of those data points as gospel truth. I think it's it's difficult for people to be able to form that that view on how to distill advice um, unless they've actually, well, ironically, gotten good advice from people like yourselves <laughs> along the way on how to do that. So, Yeah, maybe. <laughs> so after StartMate, Joseph then took the next step towards working with one of your customers, Lander and Rogers, in a more direct way through uh, the LawTech Hub. So could you talk us through that interaction with Lander and Rogers and what you what your company went through as part of that process? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the LawTech Hub at YBF is actually this, um, this amazing space that brings together an emerging community of legal tech companies in Australia. Um, the coolest part about it is that is that it has the support of a leading law firm, Lander and Rogers, um, that each of the startups in the Law Tech Hub is working with in in one way or another. Um, so for us, the opportunity to be in that space was an opportunity to work really closely on something that I spoke about just before, which was understanding our customers and their needs. Um, being in the space has allowed us to collaborate more closely with them on what our product needs to do to solve the problems that it's solving, what value our customers are creating using our product. Um, They give us advice, they give us feedback on how to work with lawyers. I mean, that's what our product is for. It's for for lawyers. Um, And and Lander and Rogers has, has that resource in spades. Yep. What are some of the challenges of working so closely with a customer and how do you overcome them? Because sometimes it can, when you're working with a single party, it can, it can seem like it becomes too siloed. So how do you take that experience and transform it in a way that's beneficial to your other set of customers as well? It's a great question. I mean, I think we were lucky that, fortunate is probably a better word, we, we came into the LawTech Hub at a point when we were already working with some of the other major law firms in Australia, like Herbert Smith Freehills, Minter Ellison, working with some of the global law firms like Wilson Sansini over in the US. Um, we were never in danger of being kind of captured by one particular customer who would then kind of control our direction. Um, I think that the th- there is a... There is a challenge with any 
major partner that you work with for an early stage company like ours of wanting to do everything they ask. You know, when they are, when they say jump, you say how high, that kind of thing. And it's because the value of the potential relationship that you might have ongoing is enormous, potentially company defining. And so you want to make sure that you do not close off that possibility while at the same time running your own race. Our, our product roadmap is designed to satisfy and meet the needs of all of our customers, well, current and future, um, not to meet the needs of any one of them exclusively. And so that's there's this kind of constant tension um, and we have that tension not just with Lander and Rogers, but with a lot of our customers. But to be honest, it's a really welcome one, right? I mean, it'd be way worse if we had no customers asking us for anything or inactive customers who weren't giving us the feedback we needed on our product, on the things they wanted to see to do what they wanted to do. Um, because then who are we building for? Yeah, so it's about going at the first principles and going, what's the product roadmap and then defining that and sticking to the plan in some ways with the in with input right with input, yeah i mean you don't want you don't want to come up with a plan for your product without input from the people who are going to use it i think we ask ourselves one we talk about a lot of things at joseph we talk about being relentlessly focused on creating beautiful user experiences we talk about who we are building for i know that sounds so simple but if you just you ask the question every day from the product perspective, who are we building for? And you need to know the answer to that question by reference to those people. Yeah. I mean, Sam and I, both of us are former lawyers. We kind of like to think sometimes that we know what the product should look like because we're lawyers. We've done it before. So build for us, um, which is met by deep skepticism from the dev team as it should be because we are going back to the data two data points in a sea of lawyers that we are building a product for that's a hard thing to do yeah <laughs> so in may 2019 some exciting news from joseph you guys raised more than a million dollars in seat funding mm. and uh well firstly congratulations thank you secondly how did you get to that point? What was the process of actually going out to investors, finding investors, and then raising that capital? It was hard is what it was. I learned a lot about, I, I sort of led the fundraising process mm. um, for Joseph, and I learned a lot about myself in that process. I learned about my capacity to take no for an answer. One of the things that, you'll hear when people give, give advice about fundraising is that, and it's the same in sales, to be honest, mm. um, the second best answer is a no. When you're fundraising, you'll start with a pretty wide funnel. You just want to talk to heaps of people who might be in a position to invest, might not, but hopefully all of whom are in a position to, to give you some advice. Um, you need to work out as quickly as you possibly can which of those people aren't in a position to invest because you're having too many conversations at the start. And so you need to actually work towards a no or to pushing them down the funnel mm. towards a yes. Um, but, you, but, but sort of living in the gray zone is what 
leads people to, to sort of be in perpetual fundraising mode, which is a company killer. Um, fundraising is not the reason we started Joseph. It has, it is a means to an end. Um, and so I think throughout we were really focused on, on that. I still had to devote a significant portion of my time to fundraising. Um, but it was never the thing that I was doing. It wasn't my job. The process itself was, was interesting. It was hard. We, we had to put together some kind of blue sky projections about where we thought the company could get to. Um, and you have to be willing to speak to those with, with some confidence. Mm. But to be honest, the people who ended up investing in us weren't investing in the tech or the numbers or those projections. They were investing in the three of us, the three founders, and the belief that they had in our capacity to build something great. Working out which investors shared that belief was was challenging because you do have to pick your investors as well. Yeah, and, uh, and that's not, the next. That's a great next follow up question. How do you how do you do due diligence on an investor? Mm. Because often the investor, you know, it's easy for them to do diligence on any company, talk to the founders, show us the books. But how do you do that for an investor? How do you know that the people that you're working with are aligned with you on that vision and who can add value? Because I think you said once uh, in an interview somewhere that all of the investors do so much more than just give money. How do you get to that point of discovery with the investors? You talk to other companies that they've invested in. I mean, this is that's like the the most the number one and most obvious piece of advice, but it is like the cardinal rule of doing your due diligence as a founder. You have to talk to other founders that the investor has invested in. Ideally, you can talk to those founders with. I, I think this is ideal. Um, hopefully, hopefully our investors are listening. Um, <laughs> I, ideally, you can talk to those other founders without being introduced by an investor. I want to talk to founders of companies where everything has gone wrong about how that investor responded, the help they offered, how they behaved when, you know, things got hard. Um, I want to talk to founders of companies who've had the worst possible falling out with those investors, as well as founders of companies who, who've done exceptionally well, because I want to understand what it's going to look like, no matter how Joseph plays out working with that investor. We also took an approach to, to our investors where we did think about what they would bring to the table beyond just a check. We're really lucky to have a pretty amazing mix of investors supporting us from Gelix, which is uh, a VC yeah. up in Sydney. Ian Gartner and... Uh, yeah, Ian and Andrea Gardner, yeah. um, who are pretty phenomenal people to work with, um, to some really sophisticated angel investors um, drawn from both the Startmate network, who are LPs at other venture capital firms, um, who bring a range of skills in in finance, in law, um, in running startups. There really is always someone for us to turn to if we, if we have one of those questions. I think we, we got spoiled during Startmate and wanted to make sure that we had that access ongoing. And it's proved to be really valuable. How has taking investor money changed 
the way you see your company because a couple of startups I've spoken to have said that you know once you take investor money it's it's different all of a sudden the pressure is 10 times higher than pre-investor money because all of a sudden you've got other people who are owning the business alongside you and you've got this pressure to to perform and to grow and to scale has that happened to the way that you approach your company now uh yes <laughs> yes to yep. all <laughs> yep no that's a thing we it, it wasn't it wasn't the investor money that changed what what we were doing it was the fact that we decided before we went looking for that money that we wanted to build a high growth and big business and once you make that decision investment is a means to that end and once you have the investment you you set yourself on a path to achieve it but we knew i mean i mean if you're going to tell the story to investors of you know the big company you want to build and how fast you're going to get there with some authenticity you actually have to want to do it before you go and have those conversations which means that you're already the type of company that they want to invest in um so i don't think taking the money was the thing that that changed us i think it was deciding that we wanted to raise it in the first place by first saying we're ready to grow and we want exactly. to build that growth company. Right. So speaking about growth, you know, these numbers might be slightly outdated, but since launching 600 more than 600 bots have been built on Joseph, uh, which have dealt with over 30,000 legal problems and this is from May 2019. How have you built that customer base? What was your strategy to get new clients on board to get that scale? I'm going to take a step back from that question sure. and just say explaining like one sentence what Joseph actually does. So, Joseph is a platform that allows lawyers to build bots that automate processes, documents, the provision of legal guidance and advice. So, our customers are legal organizations, whether they're law firms or corporate legal teams or community legal centers or government agencies doing legal work. When we talk about the bots that are built on the platform, those are bots being built by lawyers themselves. When we talk about end users, so 30,000 legal problems being solved, we're talking about the clients of those lawyers interacting with the products that the lawyers have built to solve legal problems. Those numbers are pretty outdated. I think we're up to about 3,000 bots built on the platform now. Wow, 5x um, Yeah, it's uh it we're growing pretty quickly. Um the we we built the customer base via it's it's been really interesting for us. We we haven't really had to do serious outbound sales campaigns yet. Sam and I are pretty well networked in the industry. Um there's been we're kind of riding a bit of a wave of excitement about legal technology and the transformation that it's driving in the industry at the moment. And so when we went public, when we launched in June last year, we generated a level of interest that to be honest far from subsiding has kind of snowballed. And so most of the customers that we have have come to us or talked to each other about what they're doing with us and then come to us. Others have heard us speak at conferences or read some of the uh the press that you've also read. Yep. Um about what we're working on. 
I think the legal industry, while it's a major industry, is also pretty insular. Uh, they talk to each other. And so where we are at the moment is making sure that our customers are talking to each other, to other firms, and that they're saying the right things. So, you know, I think your company is in a position where it's in a, it's having a really, really great problem. You've grown 5x in terms of the number of bots that have now been built on Joseph. That's a lot of growth. How do you stay in control? Because with that growth comes the need for team, the need to look after more customers, the need to maintain the platform. How do you... How do you manage all that chaos of high growth? So we have, we've grown the team. It doesn't, it doesn't sort of answer your question directly, but um, to manage the growth in customer base, building revenue, we've had to grow the team. So we've gone, there were still only three of us, the founders in February this year. Uh, now there are 12 of us. So that's been kind of nuts as well. Managing that growth has been its own challenge. But I think we've had to be disciplined about the types of customers that we work with and the way in which we work with them. I think the only way, the only way that we've found that works to manage what would otherwise be chaos is process mm. and constant improvement in those processes. So like implementing process and then taking a step back and saying, is this working? And taking that step back really regularly, we, we have a weekly founders meeting where we will always talk about the processes that we've recently implemented and how they could be improved or whether there's some new process that we want to implement. Um, we're really disciplined about that founders meeting and about leaving space in that conversation for talking about something as potentially banal as process, but which is so key to handling that level of growth. It seems like there's incredible trust fundamentally between you and your other two co-founders as well that enables you to, to do that. And that's incredible. That's not something that you see every day in terms of the alignment that the three of you have. Yeah. Oh, and I mean, we do trust each other implicitly, but also have a healthy capacity to disagree with each other. Um, and we disagree all the time. Um, I think that improving across every part of the business to handle what would otherwise be chaos relies on being able to disagree with each other so that the way you respond is the best way you could respond. Um, I think that, um, I mean, you have to, there, there are so many hard things about what you described as that chaos. I think for us, the thing that goes alongside trusting each other is a willingness to make suboptimal decisions really quickly because it turns out that making a slightly worse decision today most of the time is better than making a slightly better decision in a week hmm. because for startups, speed is everything. It's true. Um, agility is everything. Now, one, you have to have the confidence to make those decisions day in, day out, but two that becomes so much easier when you have the support and trust of your co-founders because they'll back you. Even if the decision was a little bit wrong, they'll remember, and they do, we do all the time, remember that we're making a million decisions a day. It is kind of chaos. And without the trust and support of each other, it's not going to be much fun. 
I have one last question for you Please. before we wrap up this <laughs> podcast. And the last question is, what was the one piece of advice you wish you had gotten before you went on this crazy journey with Joseph, before you knew anything about startups? and Or maybe just at the start of starting Joseph? I think, I think if there's one piece of advice that I wish I'd been given, and it's really hard to choose one piece of advice when there are millions of things that I that I did not know before starting a startup. Um, but the one piece of advice I wish I'd been given was be prepared for people to say no. I think the experience of starting a company, that kind of entrepreneurial spirit, um, which takes you on a path potentially that no one's ever been on before, um, is one which is kind of inherently fraught and risky and one in which you are going to butt up against obstacles every step of the way. People are going to tell you that what you are doing doesn't make any sense and they're going to tell you why what you are doing is wrong and then you're going to ask them to do this for you and they're going to say no or you're going to try to sell your product for the first time and everyone's going to say no or you're going to go out looking for investment the first time and, and everyone's going to say no to that too. I wasn't prepared or as prepared as in hindsight I would have liked to be for all of those no's and how they were going to affect me. Um, I leaned really heavily on a bunch of people for support in the early days when those no's were coming thick and fast. Um, we as a company definitely wouldn't be here if all three of us didn't have those people to lean on, including each other. But I kind of wish someone had told me at the start what that experience was going to be like just to prepare myself for it. And um, Tom, if someone wanted to be a customer of Joseph or mm. to even work with you guys, sure. how would they do that? Everyone should follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Yep. At Joseph Legal. Um, that's Joseph spelled J-O-S-E-F, by the way, for anyone listening at home. And then our website is josephlegal.com. We're always looking for people who want to come and work with us. Um, we're pretty actively hiring at the moment across our business development and the engineering team. And if you're a lawyer out there, definitely worth having a look to see what we're working on. Awesome. Thank you for being on the podcast, Tom. It was great to, to chat with you. Thank you. Thanks for having me.